You're listening to the Road to Wisdom podcast, weaving stories told by wonderful minds about all things motherhood, health, intimacy, politics, nature, and everything in between. Join us on an adventure discovering unique experiences that we can learn from to enhance the ways in which we live. We are your hosts, Chloe and Kishia. Holly, welcome to the Road to Wisdom podcast. It is such an honour to be able to chat to you today. Um, A little background on who Holly is. She's boss lady at the Women's Series. Um, You've been in the biz, not in the biz, but in the realm of health for a long time. What? 15 years, I think. Yeah, it's probably approaching more on 20 now, yeah. but yeah. So I think uh, you started in like the gym fitness world, um, exposed to some cool like Joe Dispenza and those types of influences, um, yeah. studied functional medicine or functional nutrition, um, studied with Paul Check, I believe. Yep. Um, but I, did, I did Paul. I, I'm so old. I actually did my HLC one, which is holistic lifestyle coaching with Paul himself. That's wow. how old I am because there's no way he would run those level one courses anymore. Can, sorry, you don't have to out this on our <laughs> podcast, but how old are you? Because you look like a baby. Oh, thank you. Um, no, I'm 34, but I got into oh, the... Oh, stop it. Yeah, so I got into everyone. The, Jesus. <laughs> got into the game young. I started yeah. at 17. Mm. So oh, wow. That's yeah. probably why I've been doing it for so long. Yeah. But yeah, no, Paul, um, it's crazy when I think about that because, yeah, there's no, I can't even get access to him now. I've tried mm. to actually get him on my podcast. Um, you know, but I should have I should have got his mobile number 17 years ago when I did HLC. Yeah, you should have. Um, but yeah, now you're you've kind of fallen into the niche of fertility and women's health. Um, and yeah, you you've also got your beautiful podcast. Um, and I actually found you on Instagram, and I saw a post, and I was like, this chick is badass to the point, no fluffing around, and I like it. I want to talk to her. Well. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I people, like the truth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you either hate me or you love me. That's kind of how my whole life's been, and so I guess I just brought that into my brand. Yeah. Um, when I when I came into the online space, because I'm the same. I just value the truth, and I really get actually quite frustrated by fluff. Mm. Um, so that's probably why what I put out there feels polarizing but it's it's not that that's where the intention's coming from it's just let's just get to the point and with that (laughs) said I want to just get straight to the point you talk about fertility talk about endo talk about all these things and these diagnoses that women get and they become identities for women and you talk about women being fragile you talk about um you know women needing to kind of come back into themselves and kind of you know take ownership of their health and their fertility yeah so yeah where did our fertility go (laughs) where did it go it went into the hands of big pharma i would say i mean it's a pretty low that's a loaded question um i mean if you could just tell me in like one or two minutes where did it go and how do we get it back points (laughs) um look i think it's not just specific obviously to our fertility but I like to 
think about fertility and reproductive health as such a big aspect of being a woman. Um, but I think in general, just womanhood and femininity, um, it's, it's gotten lost along the way. And perhaps there was a period where, and I, I know people don't like me talking about this, but perhaps there was a period where um, second wave and third wave feminism was good for women and it saw us get into the workforce and it saw us, you know, quote unquote, become equal and move out of the house chores, although we all still do all of that anyway. Now we're just extra, can I swear? Yeah. yeah. Extra fucked because <laughs> now we're, you know, taking care of a household and working full time. Um, but I think there was definitely a period probably in the 70s and early 80s where that term feminism was really at the essence of what it should be. But now, since then, I really feel like it's taken another dive and our perception of what it means to be a woman and, you know, be a feminist and to take care of our health is actually very patriarchal. So our, our whole thing of taking care of our fertility and to answer your question, where did our fertility go? I really believe that it's now gone into the hands of big pharma and, you know, substituting our natural cycles for synthetic hormones and substituting our quest to become mothers for, you know, um, IVF procedures. And, you know, that's where I feel like it's gone. And it's gone that way because we've been fooled into thinking that that is pro-woman and that is the feminist approach, but it's not. Mm. And we're, we've, we've been duped, is my opinion. And now that I've actually become a mother, I believe that even more so now because while I'm super grateful for the fact that I get to run my own business and, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that in the 50s, right? So there's definitely benefits to those early feminist waves. But there is a component to me where it's like, I shouldn't have to be wearing all hats. I should be enjoying these formative years with my son and my subsequent children and really just being able to be a mother and a woman and in my feminine. But the way that society is now constructed means that I don't have that opportunity anymore. So that's where I feel like uh, fertility has gone. Hopefully that answers the question. Mm, and obviously, are you going to say something, um, you know, the fundamentals of health and the laws of nature and, you know, we're really messing with that. Um, yes. What do you, what's your perspective on where we're going wrong with some of those things and what are the, what are the foundations, the fundamentals? Yeah, like it's not a popular opinion. We don't do so popular opinions, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sort of like leads back into what I was just saying about being bought into this sort of patriarchal system of, of medicine. But, you know, this, this idea that women, first off, this idea that women can have it all and that they can put their career first and become the CEO and do all those sorts of things and then have a child in their late 30s and 40s, that is a problem mm. that we have um, sold to women because I, the women that I work with are those women who are potentially starting their family at 37, 38, and it's actually not an easy process at that point, not for many people. Um, and so from there, then, of course, the easiest thing and the guaranteed thing is 
well, if you just if you just pay us and put come into our system of, you know, controlled synthetic hormones and intravenous and you know all that other, that other stuff that comes along with IVF, well, then we can guarantee that outcome for you, and that that's the message that gets sold. And so I think you know from that perspective, that's sort of where women think they should then go. But ultimately, it boils down to the fact that we really should be still honouring our um, baby making years. And one thing I actually always say to my husband is like, I've been with my husband now for 10 years. My biggest regret is not starting a family earlier. Mm. Because, you know, we probably have capped ourselves at three, max four children at this point, And we want a big family. Mm-hmm. But had we started earlier, I would have been able to achieve that with a lot more ease. So, and we didn't start earlier because I was bought into this bullshit that is, you know, make a living, make a career for yourself, buy a house, do all those things before you you go mm. on to have a family. So I just think whatever that is, I don't know what you want to classify that topic as, but I think that's probably where a lot of the fertility issues are stemming from. That's actually something we were talking about earlier, how um, how we've all been fed this kind of notion that having babies younger is like is an uneducated thing to do like you're if you're not career driven and putting that first before you start a family if you're not super educated and academic and have all these other things in a row well really you're going into your child making like childbearing in irresponsible it's irresponsible yeah you're uneducated really you should just go live in a trailer for all anyone cares and you obviously don't care about the environment as well like it's like all these bloody aspects piled up onto each other which is why like I mean a lot of the people I went to school with haven't started having babies until much much later and the only reason I think I started at 27 which is still quite young I'd say I mean, that's sorry, young old. no I'd say but like by society standards 27 is young I yeah would say. yeah and but like by biological standards that's old it's old it's old so like and you know at the time I'm like oh my god am I even ready like blah 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 but the only reason I I did start at that age and it was a very conscious decision between me and my husband was because my parents were young parents and his parents were young parents and we were like We've seen friends with older parents and having experienced younger parents who grew up with us, well, that's mm. what we want to give our children. So that's, you know, I, and then once we had our first, I was like, why did we wait so long? <laughs> like, Seriously. This, you need your youth to be able to look after a baby. You need those those years that you're partying at 4 a, like till 4 a.m. every morning and then going to work the next day totally fresh as a daisy like and backing that up four or five nights in a row that's actually what you're meant to be doing like that energy that's why it's should so be so easy yeah, yeah. you you're meant to be putting that into a newborn baby that's keeping mm. you up and then you back that shit up the next morning anyway yeah so. and you do see that like I do see that a lot with um the women that I work with who do conceive in their late 30s early 40s it's a lot of effort to mm. have a newborn at 41, 42, your, your vitality isn't the same yeah. as it would be at, say, 27. So, um, yeah, I just, I just feel like that whole fertility piece and why we use fertility clinics, a lot of it has just got to do with this societal messaging that we've been sold um, of, to your point, yeah, not, 
not having children young because otherwise you aren't going to get anywhere in life, which just isn't true. Um, but then this other side to that, coming right back to the original question, is there's a multitude of reproductive health issues that most women are told require IVF, but they really don't. This is something I really want to get into and I want to, yeah. you know, we've like we put the message out that we were having a chat with you and we've got a bit of a fertility series going on and, um, you know, a lot of people and a lot of people, you know, really close friends and family to us, they are um, they're people who have been told that they have endometriosis, totally blocked. There's absolutely no chance that you're ever getting pregnant. And so a lot of people I know have just adopted the story that, they don't want to be parents anymore. They don't. Just, mm. They've made the conscious decision that they're not going to have a child, and we'd love to speak to them. And you know, you've said multiple times on other podcasts that this is just isn't true. Um, so I'd love for you to expand on that. Yeah. So, well, do we want to just get stuck into endometriosis and yep. we can work our way through the different <laughs> reproductive it. health issues? Yep. I mean. Endometriosis is definitely, uh, so when we're looking at the statistics around what leads specifically women, not couples, women into using IVF, we know that 25% of users are experiencing what's called an ovulatory disorder. So that's the largest cohort. Um, and then second to that, 15% of users are there because they have endometriosis. So while um, endometriosis certainly can lead to severe structural damage, so to your point of so many lesions and scarring that there's no possible way of the sperm getting to the egg and then the egg implanting, there's a spectrum. Um, and so that, that type of person where there's so many adhesions and scarring and blocked tubes and so forth, that would be somebody at severe stage four endometriosis. But there's a within that 15% of women seeking out IVF, they're not all stage four. Okay, they are ranging from stage one through to stage four. So what I would say to the women who are probably in those earlier formative phases of endometriosis, so stage one, stage two, even possibly stage three, depending on um, where the scarring is and the level of scarring, there is absolutely hope and justification for you not having to go down the IVF route. There's a multitude of things that you can do to minimise scarring, break up scarring, lower inflammation, increase you know, antioxidants to the womb, decrease oxidative stress, which are all the aspects that endometriosis causes to be problematic for conception. There's also a huge immune dysregulation component to endometriosis. There is the microbiome component to endometriosis. There's the environmental component to endometriosis. So depending on what's actually driving your specific endometriosis is where you need to look to start in order to rectify, you know, I don't want to sound like cheap, but like rectify it, cock blocking you from getting pregnant. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's like a there's a there's a spectrum, and that's what's really important to understand. So if you're somebody with stage one, you don't need IVF, mm. okay? Like you don't that that's it's not black and white like that. Um, you may need IVF if you're not willing to change any of your lifestyle, 
Mm. Um, and then can we just like um, go into, sorry, to derail that a little bit, but just like what are your chances of conceiving IVF? Like what what are the statistics there? Because people seem to think that like, oh, if I can't conceive naturally, well, I'll just go down the route of IVF. But then, mm. gosh, that like you hear the stories of people going down that road and it's heartbreaking. So mm. what are like – What's the actual chance of Yeah, what are the chances of this working? So it depends what age cohort you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong, but let's. Uh, I'm going to ballpark these ages. So don't quote me on these specific numbers, but I'm pretty sure um, the cohorts range from late 20s to early 30s, early 30s to late 30s, late 30s to early 40s. So you've got those three cohorts that you can look at from a statistical standpoint with IVF. Now, People who seek out IVF, majority of them live in that second um, group. So let's say 30 to 37. Mm-hmm. That's sort of where majority of people seeking out IVF sit. Um, now, if you're in that cohort, your statistical chance of conception through IVF, it's less than 30%. Um, I don't know the exact number off my head. I have got it on my social media if somebody wants to go and fact check me. Um, or you just look up, you know, IVF statistical outcomes on Google, but it is less than 30%. If you are in the group going into your 40s, you actually have less chance of conception in IVF than you do of natural conception mm-hmm. because it drops significantly. Like if you're over the age of either 38 or 39, I can't remember which one, it drops to like 5% mm. chance of conception. Do they tell you that? No. Why not? <laughs> Use, well, I'm sure they would if you ask them. Yeah, right, but they don't say, look. I don't, yeah, I don't think they sort of, I don't think that's their sales pitch though. You know? <laughs> right, so this is what I want. Uh, yeah, we'll, maybe we can touch on that later so we don't get derailed about like statistics. the business behind reproductive yeah, well, it's, technology. It's a, it's a big business, right? But so just coming back to those points, so if you've got a 5% chance at 40 years old of conceiving via IVF, because you're going to remember if you're going through IVF at 40, your eggs are now 40 years old, Mm. okay? Now, it's a different conversation if you've harvested eggs at 25, frozen your eggs at 25, and then you go to reuse those eggs at 40. But even that, like the thawing process, like defreezing them, all of that sort of stuff, you probably lose a ton of eggs in the process. So even egg freezing doesn't guarantee a baby later on in life. Do you know what the statistics are for that too? I don't. Okay. I don't because I um, I would presume there's so many moving factors. Like there'd be women who egg retrieve and then maybe they have the baby two years later. Mm-hmm. But there would be also a lot of women who egg retrieve and then try to use those eggs seven years later. I think it's seven years um, that you can freeze eggs up to. I could be wrong on that, but I, I'm pretty sure the number is seven years. Um, but yeah, so like with the say 40 year old woman who's trying IVF, she's got a 5% chance, but if she just tries naturally and she figures out her fertile window, cause she's charting her cycle and, you know, she's doing all the right things to improve inflammation and oxidative stress and so forth. She has a 20% chance of conception every month. Mm. Who so, <laughs> yeah, but Coming all the way back to the starting point of our conversation is we've been sold this idea, but we've actually been duped. Mm. Um, 
because I don't even think it lives in those women's consciousness that they have the capacity to naturally conceive at 40. Mm -hmm. I think like the knee jerk reaction is, oh, okay, well, I've just got to start IVF now because I'm 40. But that that's actually not what the statistics tell wow. us. Um, and, you know, and that that doesn't even take into consideration the health of the woman, the health of the of the couple, egg quality, sperm quality, like because that we know that they make a big difference in the ease of conception as well, right? So that's why you can have a really healthy 40-year-old woman who has preserved her fertility really well because she's never been on hormonal contraception and she's always eaten organic and she's moved her body and she's got out and out in the sun her whole life. And so her egg would actually probably be better than say the 27 year old who vapes and parties at night and is on the OCP and, mm. you know, doesn't care what she eats. So, you know, there's a difference between biological age and chronological age mm -hmm. in this conversation as well, which never gets taken into consideration. I feel like we live in an area here where um, a lot of the mothers are older, but as far as I'm aware, they, um, they've all naturally conceived and they all look a bit younger than me. <laughs> I'm always shocked <laughs> when I hear, like in my daughter's class, there are so many mums that are like, like edging on 40 or 40 plus and they'll tell me their age and I'm like, wait, what? Really? Like, <laughs> Oh my yeah. gosh. It's the Byron life. Huh? It's the Byron life. Oh, oh. Um, what would, so like if someone, because I'm really interested in understanding the truth behind people's, you know, people who I, I want to say identify or they, yeah, that they, what am I trying to say? Like they identify with the diagnosis that they've been told. Victim and mentality. Is it victim mentality maybe? Yeah. Mm. Um. Mm. And they just go along with that story. If they mm. were to go down and, you know, not to mention that they, some of these women are also being told that they need to be on OCP to manage the endo symptoms as well as you'll never be able to um, conceive naturally and have a baby. So that's that story. That's one story. That's one path you can take. But do these women have, you know, what would you, what could they do? What could they be doing if they walked another path? The endometriosis specifically. Yeah. Like how um, do you get off that? That roller coaster? Yeah. Of victim consciousness? Not, not, not exactly just the victim consciousness, but you've been to the doctors, you've been to specialists and you've gone into that model of care and they've told you that you're going to have to be on OCP to manage your endo symptoms. You're not going to be able to have a baby and they mm. want to get off that and they want to do something else. Mm. Well, I mean, the first port of call is you've got to find a functional or eastern or holistic practitioner who specializes in fertility and understands it from all different lenses um you know pe people get fr frustrated with how um, minimalist or systems based their doctor might treat them or you know the ivf clinic might treat them but it's like you're going into their arena mm. You can't get annoyed. I mean, I had a conversation with a client yesterday who's newly pregnant and um, she went to get her HCG blood test done. And while she was there, they gave her a urine test to do as well, even though that that's not what she had gone in for. And then that urine test uh, picked up that she had group B strep infection at eight weeks pregnant, which is totally irrelevant anyway. So now from that, 
her midwives are suggesting that she may not be able to do a home birth. She might have to have intravenous antibiotics set up at the birth. Her doctor then, she then rang her doctor and her doctor said, oh yeah, we've got to put you on amoxicillin or, you know, some form of antibiotic because it can be really damaging for the baby. So she's telling me all of this. And she said, I'm just so annoyed that they made me do it. But I said to her, they didn't make you pee. (laughs) Like you chose to do that. So you can't be annoyed when you walk into that type of system for them to then start burrowing down on all of these different types of interventions. You're choosing to be a part of that system. Mm. You know, it ultimately does come down to choice. And I think as women in general, we're really, really shit at saying no. And we're really, really shit at standing our ground and doing our truth and doing what we want to do. So it's very easy to get like railroaded once you've dipped your toe uh, through those doors, you know. Um, So what I would suggest to those women who are being told all of that information, you need to get out of the system. Like if that doesn't feel right to you and if you know deep in your heart that there are there has to be a, another solution, there has to be another way to rectify your reproductive health issues, whether it be endo or anything else for that matter, um, you can't expect that of them. And to be fair to doctors, like they don't know any different either. Mm. Like that's just what they've been taught. So, of course, that's what they're going to suggest. Of course, the GP suggested to my client to take antibiotics. Why wouldn't he? Mm. Um, he's not versed in herbal medicine. He's not going to say, hey, go do a yoni steam or you know, <laughs> take some oregano or whatever it might be. Can we just for a moment imagine a GP that would say to you, just do a yoni steam? <laughs> well, I'm sure you'd find one in Byron Bay, but you're definitely not going to find one in Melbourne, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I think just... For those women listening who feel feel like there's another path, just start by removing yourself from the system. Like I know this is like a wild concept, but you actually don't have to do anything that anyone tells you to do. <laughs> Shock. I'm so glad you've shared that. <laughs> yeah, it's like that includes like when you're pregnant, you don't have to do any tests, mm. nothing. If you don't want to do the gestational diabetes test, don't do it. <laughs> It doesn't matter what your obstetrician tells you or you do not, by law, have to do anything you don't want to do. Um, So you just have to keep that sort of stoicism about you when you're in that setting. Um, But, yeah, looking for an Eastern or a functional medicine practitioner that has proven results, it is hard because, you know, we could go down the tinfoil hat route, but, you know, if you Google functional medicine practitioner, we know how Google search engine works. So you're not going to be sent me, are you? You're going to be sent someone who is still very connected to the system. So it is a matter of, you know, getting on socials, speaking to your friends, like seeking out references and starting on that path of alternative support. Go to your nearest health food shop (laughs) and whoever's working in the naturopaths area. Start asking questions. Yeah, that's a really good tip. So, I mean, that's what I would suggest they do. I mean, from things that they can action very quickly, you want to look at specifically to endometriosis, you need to be looking at your nutrition. Like that's just a no-brainer. Can you just expand on that? 
Because I know there's a few stories, you know, people think anti-inflammatory means plant-based because meat is inflammatory. Yeah. So Well, so the thing is with um, red meat, so with endometriosis specifically, uh, a lot of the pain comes from these things called prostaglandins. And we have different prostaglandins. We've got what's called PG1, PG2, PG3, etc. And some are bracketed as pro-inflammatory substances and others are bracketed as anti-inflammatory substances. When you, you've got endometriosis, there's a very high chance that you have an overabundance of the pro-inflammatory prostaglandin. So that's where the pain comes from with the bleeding. Now, red meat, from a metabolic standpoint, breaks down into something called arachidonic acid and arachidonic acid then converts into prostaglandin 2, which is the pro-inflammatory prostaglandin. So that's where this whole thing came from was, oh, well, if you eat red meat, you've got more arachidonic acid and that's going to increase your PG2 and that's going to just like flare up the endo. However, it that's a very simplistic way of looking at it because we've got these balancing pathways of these anti-inflammatory prostaglandins. Now, PG1, you know, um, that starts as omega-3. So any of your omega-3 foods that's metabolically break down and get converted into prostaglandin 1. You've also got omega-9, okay? Now, omega-6 breaks down into arachidonic acid and into prostaglandin 2. So any omega-6 foods are, you know, well, I'm talking about like canola oils, vegetable oils, those types of foods. And then omega-9 breaks down into an anti-inflammatory prostaglandin 3. So when it comes to food for endometriosis, it's not about saying, well, red meat's the devil and you've got to cut it out because it's very beneficial. It has a lot of nutrients in it that all of the other animal proteins don't have, particularly things like iron and B12. But let's minimise our intake and let's increase our omega-3 and omega-9 intake. So like oily fish, so sardines were amazing for women with endometriosis, salmon, things like avocado, olive oils, really rich in omega-9, scallops, you know, these types of things would be, they're, they're what I usually encourage women with endometriosis to consume more of. And then alongside that, you want to avoid those pro-inflammatory proteins. Gluten is the obvious one. Uh, we know that casein in cow's dairy can be problematic for women with endometriosis because there is that uh, estrogenic component of endometriosis. So, you know, maybe you shift to sheep's or goats or even camel's milk if, you're, if you've got endo. Um, you want to remove any artificial colours and flavourings, preservatives from your diet. There is a direct correlation between the uh, expansion of endometriosis and glyphosate. So... You have to be consuming organic if you have endo because there is a very, very strong correlation there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the third thing would be how many calories are you actually eating? So you want to make sure that you're properly nourishing your body within that sort of template that I just explained. Um, and just a side note with the red meat and arachidonic acid, like fish is high in arachidonic acid. Mm. But... You don't hear anyone say, wow, fish is so pro-inflammatory, so mm. bad for endo. Like it's only red meat. Mm. <laughs> like it's just, well, it does my head in this conversation. Well, killing the planet. 
Yeah, Holy. that's right. <laughs> that's right. Cows are killing the planet, not all the private planes that all the climate oh, no. activists fly on. Oh, don't. So, we could um, go down there. We could. We could go down that way. Yeah, you know, so it's like, so from a nutritional standpoint, that's what I would be starting with. Mm. And then, you know, lifestyle things that you can do would be obviously removing all toxic products from your house, um, beauty products, cleaning products, even the food, the uh equipment that you cook on so you know non-stick teflon stuff you want to get rid of Um, looking at flame retardants the mattresses that you sleep on because while that all might seem really micro it it equates to a macro problem Mm, uh, when you start to realize the severity of how many products you're and chemicals you're being exposed to um so holly we actually put out a little shout out for questions from our audience um yesterday and one of the questions that came through which I think is a really good one was how do we protect our children's fertility so I know you've just touched on I guess the plethora of things that we can do but it's something I think I'm actually worried about I think a lot of people are worried about especially if you listen to any of Shanna Swan's stuff on is it phthalates in in the water and breakdown of plastic which is I mean we eat organic and I'm still you know terrified of foods that would still have these plastics in it and and mm. chemicals regardless of where you're buying your food and vegetables from so mm. um yeah if you could maybe help us out there on how we can i mean work towards making sure that our children keep their fertility well you know echoing what Sh- dr shana swan talks about like actually the best way to preserve your child's not only their fertility but just their health is in your preconceptive years. Like preconception is the biggest contributing factor to the health of your offspring. And um, if somebody is dealing with what the system would bracket as an infertility issue, so endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, POI, HA, like all of those sorts of diagnoses, that's a huge red flag that even if you got pregnant with that issue, if you haven't dealt with why you have that issue in the first place, that will definitely contribute to the health of your offspring. In what way? It's not linear. I can't be like, if you have endo, your kid will have this. Okay. (laughs) But we know that the more inflamed you are, so that's definitely relevant for women with endometriosis, the more immunologically compromised you are, um, the more disrupted your microbiome is, the more uh, unsettled your nervous system is, the more exposed you are to products, you know, all of these things negatively impact the health and development of your baby. And that would include your child's fertility, um, and or their reproductive health. Like Shana Swan talks about how, um, and I actually did this when my son was born because I found it so interesting. So the distance between the <laughs> anus and the gooch. Oh, my God. I can just imagine you with like a little measuring No, I just had my fingers. <laughs> okay. But I, I should just get a set of it. I should just get a ruler. But th- that the gooch is what I guess most men would call it. But the distance between the testicles and the anus, if that is less than two adult finger widths, then that's an indication that your son may actually have fertility issues later on in life. Um, And that's directly associated with phthalate exposure 
in the pregnancy. So, you know, you've got preconception, but then you've also got maternal health. So what are you doing while you're pregnant? So mm. many women just go, oh, I'm pregnant. Yes. I can eat shit. Mm. It's because I'm pregnant. I can just laze around. Eating I don't have to two. worry about training. Yeah, I'm eating for two. It's like, yeah, but you know, this, this is actually the time where you really need to honor your health more than anything else, because the health of your baby depends on it. Right. So I would say to answer your question, preconception is what's most important to support your offspring's fertility and reproductive health. But then also while you're pregnant, um, doing all the right things to avoid chemical exposure as well. Mm -hmm. They're good ones. How about for those of us who didn't do either of those things (laughs) and now the baby's out? (laughs) Yeah. And that's a reality for most people. Yeah. Um, And, you know, nothing I ever say is to shame anybody or make somebody feel bad about their choices. If you didn't know, you didn't know. Yeah. Um, But now that you do know. Mm. I guess you're just following the same principles as you would. Correct. With us. Um. Yeah. It's like you can, now that you do know, it's like don't have your kid eating out of plastic. Mm. Pretty easy solution. Mm -hmm. You know, cook, cook in stick pans try and feed your kid organic foods like there are really easy ways don't give your kid Panadol every night Mm. like I have friends that jokingly tell me they give their child Panadol every night while they're teething or and I'm like what the fuck are you doing Mm. you know Mm. like there are simple things that you can do as a parent the the, the most formative years um, the formative time for a child is the first thousand days So that's from conception through to age two. That's when we know, you know, um, whatever you expose yourself to or you expose your child to in that, in those first thousand days, heavily influences their health long-term. And this is where the breastfeeding conversation comes in because I know it's a contentious topic and people like to really get irate about fed is best, but the research is very clear breast is best, Mm -hmm. breast milk is best in terms of long-term health outcomes on the child. Mm -hmm. Children who are formula fed from day one have much higher rates of allergies, neurodevelopmental issues, you know, skin conditions. Like, so it's not about shaming anyone (laughs) to your point before. It's actually about understanding the truth. And the truth is in those first two years of life, try your absolute best to breastfeed. You know, I know for some people it can be really challenging, but then the question is, why is it challenging? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you eating enough? Are you nourishing yourself enough? Are you being supported properly? Have you got people around you where they can assist you like a lactation consultant? Um, are you persevering enough? You know, I've met women who just said, oh, I can't be fucked after three it days. Honestly, like, it took me two months to establish breastfeeding with my first and Mm -hmm. I had every opportunity to pull the plug and be like, this is fucking hard. I'm not doing it. I tried my best. Yeah. I had one of my friends, um, she actually had a baby shortly after I had poet and it happened with her first as well. Her milk just didn't come in and she put calls out for breast milk Um, and the community came together and fed her baby and she continued to persevere. It took her four months, Mm -hmm. four months of like supplementing with all these other women's breast milk. Mm. And then she was she was 
donating milk to people because her milk came in. Like I have so much respect for that person. Yeah, and like that's that's the second thing, right? So um, uh, most women don't realise there's milk banks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're, look, we're in an area where everyone should know, and if they don't, sure like, do you live under a rock? But just call Kashia. I just want to share just before we got on this phone call, Kashia was literally pumping into her coffee cup because she has so much milk in those things. <laughs> oh, I just realised that I'd fed my baby off the one breast all night, and then it's we've the been in here for how many hours? And my other boob is just full. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, yeah, so breast breast banks. Well, milk banks, sorry. Uh, breast banks. <laughs> breast banks. Oh, probably the next best thing, right? Before, yeah. if you can get access to that before then having to jump to formula. Now, I have clients that cannot breastfeed. Like I have a client who had a breast reduction in her 20s. Her ducts are gone. Mm-hmm. There's like she tried. She actually she tried when her child came out. She only got about 10 mils of breast milk. So, you know, in that situation that person tried they did what they could but Mm. structurally she just wasn't in a position so she's chosen a good organic she did um uh, donated breast milk and then she moved on to an organic formula but that's a very small percentage of women who are actually in that kind of situation i would i would say Mm -hmm. i would say majority of women who choose not to breastfeed it's not because it's a structural abnormality or you know, anything's going on there, it's because of those factors I just mentioned. Mm. Um, but it's crucial for the health of your child, you know. And then we wonder why our kids get to eight or nine or ten and you've got these behavioural issues taking place and you've got eczema on the kid or, you know. You know what? I actually just want to quickly interject because I feel like we're on the path of it and I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about it. Speaking of children who start to express issues and inserting fertility issues, have you kind of explored the the part where vaccines play a role in fertility, especially for us who – so some of our parents wouldn't have kind of guessed any of the schedule and, you know, I remember getting vaccinated for the HPV and all that stuff in school. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read much or explored much of that? being at yeah yeah. my my professional and personal opinion around vaccinations um in regards to behavioral issues in children because that was the original Mm, question and we can talk we can talk about just vaccines in general if you want but um i don't think they're causative Mm. i don't think it's like you get this vaccine and now your child has autism yeah but i do think they are a massive blow of gasoline on the fire and if your child is already in a vulnerable position because you've had you've got poor health going into preconception you've got poor health during your pregnancy um maybe they're then c-sectioned out then they're formula fed so you know their brain is already incredibly vulnerable and then you go in and you give them 72 shots over the course of 18 months well yeah that's not going to be conducive with a thriving brain. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a super contentious topic because any parent, myself included, if I was to find out that I had willingly done something to my child that had caused a problem, 
I don't know how, I mean, I personally would be open, but I don't know how many parents would be open to accepting that responsibility. Mm. So it's very challenging to talk about this because there is a huge amount of parents out there that have made that decision for their child and um, their child has worn the consequence Mm. that are just digging their heels in and saying, you're all quacks and, you know, the the aluminium and the mercury is totally fine. It's got nothing to do with it. Um, so it's it's hard, and I understand why that happens. I do understand why parents get like that because it would be really challenging to accept that responsibility. But yeah, to answer your question, I don't think they're causative, but I do think they probably tip a lot of people over the edge. Mm. Um, and then there's a huge genetic component to neurodevelopmental disorders. So there's a there's a, a theory in science called the critical load model of autism. I don't know if either of you are Mm. familiar with that, but it's this, it's, and I definitely, I am in alignment with this theory, but it's this idea where, you know, say you've got one parent who has a genetic susceptibility to, let's just keep using autism as the example, but then she's also obese. She also has Hashimoto's. She's also a smoker. um, She has a gluten intolerance. She lives on a main road. And then she gets pregnant and she has a C-section and a formula feds the baby. That baby, the, the load of inflammation on that child is tips it over the edge to the point where they then have issues with their neurons migrating and um, end up having those behavioural developmental issues. But then you have another mother who has a genetic susceptibility and maybe she's also obese, but that's it. You know, and so she's while she has those vulnerabilities at play, it's not enough to tip the load or, you know, spill the cup, as we mm. would say it. So I definitely think that's a component in the neurodevelopmental space. But all you need to do is look at how many children have neurodevelopmental issues. It's yeah. not it's not because we're diagnosing better. No. Do you think that that's the case with the, um, you know, some of those PCOS endo cases and getting those vaccines like the cervical cancer ones that we got when we were young yeah I mean if you adopt terrain theory Mm. and if you adopt the principles of practices like German new medicine Mm. um, stabbing your cervix and scraping your cervix and lasering your cervix it's like you know your cervix is deep inside the womb for a reason Mm -hmm because it's not really meant to be coming into contact with the outside world. Um, And I really like am in alignment with like, I feel like, and this is definitely truthful during pregnancy for women. There's a lot of like looking for problems. Mm. Yeah. And that's why maybe it's me putting my head in the sand, but like, why are you getting all these tests done? Do you feel good? Are you functioning well? Because if you do, then why are you looking for a problem? I don't get this, like, approach to... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, it's a good way to capture people, I think. Because yeah. if, you're, if you're screening for the things, um, well, you catch it early and then we can, we can save you, essentially. Mm. So I think that's probably the angle that's being taken. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, glad you, um, I'm glad you touched on G&M because I'm a big fan Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I've heard a couple of stories where 
you know, infertility. I've explored it and been a bit nosy. And I'm like, so what about your parents and your mom? And, and there's always something. And so I do wonder like, and I know that you've studied psychology yourself. So do you have a opinion or a perspective or a bit of a theory with infertility from a, a psyche standpoint? Yeah, well, there's this um, theory. No, I don't think it's a theory model. It's called the red thread. Have you guys mm. heard of that? Yeah. So it's, you know, the lineage of your reproductive health starts with your grandmother. And we know from a scientific standpoint that your eggs are formed in your grandmother's womb. So there's definitely um, that intergenerational piece when it comes to fertility. And, you know, if your grandparents were immigrants or they fled war or something traumatic happened then, then we know that that trauma response on their nervous system can then carry through to your egg and your reproductive health. Um, you know, even though that's happened to them 60 years ago and you weren't even alive, there's definitely that psychological, uh, like neuroimmunological psych, psychological response through a mouthful um, that takes place for sure. So, and that's clear in the literature, like that's mm. not hocus pocus. Um, I do think the psychological aspect of fertility in general, yeah, plays a massive role. Um, even just like, do you believe that you can get pregnant? Mm. <laughs> like, do you actually think this is going to happen? Um, what was your, there's a woman called uh, Janice Barcello. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with her work. No. Uh, but anyone who wants to go down this rabbit hole, she's the person I would recommend. She wrote um, a book called Birth, Trauma and the Dark Side of Modern Medicine. Sounds like it's right up our alley. <laughs> yeah, it's it's full on. I made the mistake of reading it while I was pregnant and I was like, why the fuck am I doing this? Um, but she talks a lot about how, you know, what was your, so for example, when your mum fell pregnant, was she expecting that pregnancy? Because if that was a pregnancy she didn't expect, what was her initial emotional response to that pregnancy? Because if it was, oh, my fucking God, I can't believe I'm pregnant. I don't want this baby. I don't want to keep this baby. Those thoughts, and Janice talks about this, um, are likely taking place around four and five weeks gestation because that's usually when women find out or five to six weeks gestation. So what's, what's developing at five to six week gestation? Well, the lungs are developing at week six. So those children are then potentially born as asthmatics, lung disorders. We know that the lungs are the organs of grief. So there's definitely that psychological component um, to fertility. And then how does that play out when you then want to have a child? You know, there's a great book called uh, It Didn't Start With You by a guy called Mark Wallen. Mm. Um, so for those who want to deep dive that intergenerational piece, that is the book. It's like so interesting um, because, yeah, so, so many things outside of your conscious capacity can influence your fertility journey. It's not just as simple as I've got PCOS, so I need to go to IVF. Mm. And there's also the Louise Hay element of mm -hmm. having a traumatic experience or going through something incredibly dramatic. Yeah. Um, and then something, um, I think her story is she was sexually assaulted and then had cervical cancer or, or and then she be obviously believed that that was because of she had so much grief in that area. 
Mm. Well, we know this with endometriosis. So there's the study where it looked at 79,000 women with endometriosis and 75% or 75 or 79% of them um, had sustained sexual assault. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's... So that's a huge cohort as well they're looking at. They're not looking at like 600 people. They're looking at over 70,000. That's insane. I yeah. remember when PCOS like was, I mean, sorry, not PCOS. Was it endo? You did say endo. endo. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when endo was like rare. Mm. Do you remember when it was rare? Like when you had it and or like you heard of someone having it and they're like, oh my God, it's like the rarest thing. I remember ever. never hearing about it and then poof, suddenly like Everyone has everyone's it. got it. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and look, that probably boils down to better diagnosis mm, structure totally. now, which is which is good. Um, but there's uh, personally, I just think with endometriosis, there's a huge trauma component, and I do think there's like a huge immunological. I think it's autoimmune mm-hmm. because you see it pop up in men, you see it pop up in babies, you see it pop up in postmenopausal women. So it's not isolated to reproductive women. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, I was just back on the. Um, GNM piece Hmm. when it is something that is multi-generational obviously that's not something that we have full control of but are there ways that we can fix that and you don't have to go into them but just to give people a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel (laughs) hopefully (laughs) yeah well the my understanding of the GNM stuff um is yeah I mean you can't go back in time even if it is a trauma that you've sustained yourself so I'll give you my um experience with JNM. I uh, obviously had my child just over a year ago now and uh, started to experience the quintessential four-month postpartum hair loss, but then it didn't stop. So my hair loss has not stopped and I have quite fine hair as it is. Um, and so I sort of got to the 13-month postpartum mark and, you know, I'm eating well. <laughs> mm. I'm taking my subs. I'm not somebody who should be vulnerable to this. And I thought, what the fuck is going on? So I went to the JNM guy and uh, he started doing some testing on me and um, we, in German new medicine, the dominant side of your body is the mother and the non-dominant side is everybody else in your life, okay? So my hair loss is predominantly on my right side of my head, which is my mother line, which makes sense because it's in alignment with when I had Ted. And then we looked up he starts testing my body because a kinesiologist as well. And he's, he's going, oh, because hair is associated with the epidermis in German new medicine. And the epidermis is associated with a um, separation conflict. Mm. Okay. So he starts testing me. Does she have a separation conflict with her partner? Yes. No. My body's like, no. Does she have a separation conflict with her work? Yes. No. No. Does she have a separation conflict with her child? Yes. Yes. He goes, Yes that can't be right. <laughs> that's what he said to me. And I go, Oh my God, no, that's right. And he goes, well, I'm glad that makes sense to you. Cause I've got no idea what the fuck's going on. And I said, well, when he was born, he was taken from me for 24 hours. So I didn't have contact with him for 24 hours. So that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I wouldn't have had that experience had I not had that appointment. And then to answer your question, where do you go from there? Because I can't go back to my birth. It's about bringing awareness because every time I'm with Ted now, my nervous system goes, oh, my God, separation conflict, separation conflict. So now it's about me 
you know, and you can have a conflict on both sides. So while he was taken away from me, I also have this issue as of being a mother. I, I get touched out. Okay, I'm not a physical person. So there is a component where I want more separation from him sometimes. So it's about whenever he's like touching me out, me having awareness saying, my hair is healthy, my skin is healthy, my separation conflict is gone. And the more I can do that, my hair has actually stopped falling out since I saw this guy. Mm. So, you know, like that's an example of how you can move forward. It's just about cultivating awareness in those moments of stress or trauma or those, you know, triggering moments that Gen Z like to talk about Mm. um, over anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I do love a bit of good G&M story. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. But look, to be be honest, as I said to my husband when I got back from the appointment, that's only going to work if you're open to it. Mm. It's not going to work for somebody who just goes, what the that fuck is, is going on? L- Luke shit. <laughs> yeah, like it's not. So you, and it's like the Joe Dispenza stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to be open to believing that there's that esoteric element of healing because if you don't have that openness, none of that is going to work for you. Um so it's, it's also about recognising your beliefs and your value systems, you know. It's what Abraham Hicks talks about all the time of staying in your vortex and not allowing that vortex to be penetrated. But people's vortexes are penetrated all day, every day, and they don't even know it. Mm. Um, and it's like, like you can't just jump into this, like, esoteric stuff either. You've no. got to slowly. <laughs> it's people. a slow awakening, isn't it? Mm. yeah and then like I don't know I'd like dip my toe in and take it back out dip it in again and take it back out and then I'll just jump for a bit and get back out (laughs) yeah it's true you've got to go with your with your mood and your energy and you know your own vibration of the day really Mm. Mm. can I can we just quickly just to finish it talk about quickly if this is even something you can talk about quickly it's just (laughs) because I feel like people jump I'm just going to go back to IVF for a, a hot minute and all reproductive technology. Back to fertility. Um, yeah. Is if someone's wanting to do IVF, we know that it's you got a low chance of it succeeding. You know, we know that there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you should you could do to increase those chances of it working. And there's a whole lot of stuff that you could do um, before you even consider needing IVF. Um, and I always like to talk about the laws of nature and you know your foundations and your fundamentals but from your perspective what are what are your what would you what would you say to people to try to get your head around and actually consistently commit to before wasting any money on seeing a functional medical practitioner um or even going to your closest fertility clinic yeah it's a good question because nobody does it (laughs) um you have to get your fundamentals right like for months. Yes. Like so that means you have to eat well for months. You know, you have to sleep well for months. You have to move your body well for months. You have to hydrate well for months. Uh before ever judging your fertility situation or circumstance. Um and before ever embarking on using places like IVF because we know that if you go into the IVF process healthier, you do have better success outcomes. So whether you 
whether you have to use that or not, you still should be getting healthy. Um, and yeah, that just requires consistency of those fundamentals. But most people go, oh, well, I tried that. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Oh, I tried that supplement. It didn't work. Or that it's acupuncture like, but, once. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you went and saw an acupuncturist three times. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Or you tried a paleo nutritional template for 10 days. That didn't work. <laughs> or you know, one like, at a time. I slept really well for a month but wasn't eating, you know, more than 2,500 calories a day or whatever, yeah. you know, as people think that think they should 18. eat. Yeah. 1,800. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to which is why, um, not to plug my stuff, but my, the first course on my education portal called Health Ed with Holly, it's just about understanding those basics and actually implementing them consistently for months. There's no point working with someone like myself or a fertility expert or anyone until you're doing that. Holly, would you say that there's an element too? Because I know that like obviously women are getting into the game of procreating later and later in life. And so there would be this like ticking clock then as soon as you get into it, there's not like, okay, you know, I guess the ultimate situation is that you're relaxed um, when you're going to conceive, that you're not, there's no stress on you, on your body, on a time frame. But because women are waiting later and later, there is that, there's that like biological clocked, so to speak. And so, you know, if they try something for a week or two weeks or, you know, do a couple of appointments and it doesn't work, it's like that that culture of needing something now and having everything and wanting it when I want it and mm. therefore like just catapulting themselves into that medicalized assisted reproductive technology and But time's yeah. gonna pass regardless. Yeah, yeah. Well no and that's you know, that's so it's good. like Time will pass whether you go through, let's say, IVF because mm. that I think the average, so the average pregnancy occurs after the third stim cycle and per stim cycle you can have six, seven, eight transfers, let's say. So I don't know what the timeline on that would be but let's say you have your third stim cycle with six transfers. So you're at 12 months at that point, or you're at 18 months at that point until you get um, a baby out of IVF, not a pregnancy, a baby. Mm. Do you know how much you can achieve in 18 months with your health? Mm. Mm -hmm. So my point is like that time will pass either way. Um, Just because you're going through IVF doesn't mean you're going to walk out with a baby nine months later. Mm. In fact, that's not what the statistics tell us. That tells us that that average is around that 18 to 24 month period. And that's 50 grand down the hole, mind you. What could you spend 50 grand on to actually just get healthy for 18 months? Think about that. That's crazy. I would live with you for 50 grand. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like done. So there there are things it's, it's, it ultimately boils down to the person's perception Mm. and what they value Mm. really. But just because you're going through the medicalized system does not guarantee it's going to be a quicker process by any means. Mm. And just to finish off with some hope, have you, (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, on a lighter note, <laughs> a lighter, loving, hopeful note, have you had a lot of success working with women with endo getting pregnant naturally? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had a lot of women who got diagnosed with endo who maybe didn't even have endo. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they've just sold themselves this story. Um, and then I've had women who have really aggressive endo and I will always work alongside a obstetrician or a fertility expert in that sense. Um, you know, I know my place and I'm not going to kid somebody if I feel like they need that um, industrialised support, then we will do that while mm. also maintaining as healthy a body as possible. But, mm. yeah, there's definitely there's hope. I've had so many women with endometriosis get pregnant Um so there's an, absolutely no reason why that can't be a factor. In fact, most doctors still tell women to get pregnant to just manage their endo. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for Pleasure. having this chat with us today. It's been wonderful. And I hope all of the ladies out there with endo or PCOS or any fertility challenge have gotten something out of this. Pleasure. We will talk to you soon. Thanks, girls. Bye. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for tuning in to the Road to Wisdom podcast. To join the journey, you can follow us on Instagram at theroadtowisdom.podcast and at www.theroadtowisdompodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to seeing you next week with more juicy content.